Good morning and uh, welcome to this uh, hybrid event uh, taking place both physically here in the Euractiv Brussels office uh, and online. An event which is uh, kindly supported by European Aluminium, the trade association representing the aluminium industry. My name is Frédéric Simon, I'm the Energy and Environment Editor of Euractiv and I will be your host for today's event which is titled Strategic Raw Materials, Europe's Industrial Agenda for a Sustainable and Resilient Future. Now the reason we're addressing uh, this topic today is because the European Commission is preparing a uh, raw materials, uh, critical raw materials act for publication in Q1 uh, next year with the objective of supporting the green and digital transitions in Europe. So how far have we gone in this reflection about uh, strategic or critical raw materials? What do we actually mean by critical? And what is the objective that the EU should be pursuing uh, with uh, this initiative to debate this topic today? I have the pleasure of welcoming Peter Handley sitting next to me. He's head of unit at the European Commission's DG Grow. Paul Voss. Director General of European Aluminium, Julia Poliskanova, she's Senior Director at Transport and Environment, the Clean Mobility NGO, and finally Anna Michel Azimakpoklu, a Greek MEP who is also Vice Chair of the European Parliament's International Trade Committee. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. We'll start uh, this event with short uh, introductions from each of the speakers and then we'll move on to a uh, moder moderated uh, discussion. That will also include uh, questions from the audience. Uh, to put your questions to the panelists, uh, please uh, <clears throat> use the Slido platform and do that whether you're here physically in the room or online. We'll try and take um, a few questions before we close. I think that's all for me for the, for the introduction. So without further ado, Peter Handley, the floor is yours. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Paul, for organising the event today. It's very timely. Yes, indeed, the Commission is working on producing a European Critical Raw Materials Act, and uh, we're working very actively on this at the moment. So you probably ask yourselves, why, why are we doing this? And the answer to that is that there is now a very, very stark political realisation that... Um, European Union has, um, uh, is, is way too exposed in terms of its strategic dependencies on one or two suppliers for all of those things that we need to make our European Green Deal work, to make our digital uh, agenda work. And um, we have an insufficiently resilient uh, uh, European economy. And industry is at the heart of this story. So that's why in response to the European Council's march uh, Versailles Declaration, we are working to uh, reinforce the level of ambition with which we're working to secure the supply of critical raw materials and also to make sure that we really maximise circularity, resource efficiency and external diversification of sources. But as President von der Leyen has said, um, first and foremost this is about building capacities in Europe. We have to develop a value chain approach, we have to um, really make sure that we build and keep what uh, metal processing and refining capabilities we have today, which are under severe pressure due to high energy prices. We have to really make a stronger market uh, for secondary raw materials, for recovery and recycling. And we have to look at where it makes sense to uh, extract raw materials here in Europe, whether it's from former mining operations, where there are wastes and tailings containing critical raw materials, or in certain cases, from doing mining here in Europe, where we will need to show to the public that we are able to do this in the most sustainable, responsible, and uh, community-inclusive way possible. So I think I'll maybe stop there. Thank you. Thanks, Peter, uh, for setting the scene. Paul Voss, the floor is yours now. I don't, know if I, have to say, <coughs> I don't know if I have to say anything. I agree with every single word of that. Um, <coughs> look, I, when I came to this job, um, I... I came because uh, I started to, to consider the, the question of, of raw materials. Um, I hadn't thought about it before, really. I worked in, in energy before this, and I never really considered the way that the energy transition and the economy we want to have in the future needs to be 
built out of something. Um, and I certainly hadn't thought much about aluminium, if I'm honest. I mean, I had a tennis racket made out of it, I think, in the, in the early 80s, and that's about as far as it went. And when I was approached about a job, I started to think about it, look into it a bit, and you realize that aluminium is absolutely everywhere, particularly if we're moving towards a, a greener energy model. So the photovoltaic frames that we need, the power cables that we need to move the electricity around, electric vehicles, and so all, uh, and so on. None of this happens without aluminium, which should in principle be great news for the European aluminium industry. So we should just be looking at a, a very bright future. There's four million tons or so of additional demand for metal that will come just from the, the clean energy transition. The problem is we are increasingly finding ourselves in a situation where because of the boundary conditions, the market conditions in which we're operating, especially, um, but not only, the extremely high energy costs that we're facing at the moment, the industry is suffering from a very serious competitiveness problem. I mean, I used to, I used to hear industry complaining about struggling to re remain competitive in Europe. And I used to think, well, if the ETS is hovering at four euros a ton, you should really be able to bear it. And I used to not take it particularly seriously and used to think, you know, that's just, that's just whinging. Um, but what we're looking at now is a massive deindustrialization in Europe. And it's, it's, not just a, it's not just a threat, it's not just a prospective problem in the future, it's already happening. We have plants closing their doors. And the demand for the metal is still going to be there. So the only other possible future is that we end up importing higher carbon metal, maybe three times higher carbon intensive metal from other parts of the world. We remain dependent on imports from countries and regions with which we have increasingly fraught relations. And none of this makes any sense. So I mean, I'm, I'm really pleased that the Commission has taken this up. I'm really looking forward to seeing what's done. I would say that we need to make sure that we don't let ourselves stay restricted to the somewhat narrow concept of critical raw materials, but also think about strategic materials. Think about what do we want to build our society out of in the future, and how do we make sure that we can get access to those things and that we can do as much as possible here in Europe. I worry a lot about a civilization that can't make its own metal, its own chemicals. You, you, you can't build um, a secure civilization on that basis. You can't. You'll, you'll always be... In, in, in danger of having disruptions or just simply being unable to meet the basic needs of your society. So we, we really do need to make sure we get the grips for this. And I think the war has brought this into stark reality for us all the last months. We found it expedient to outsource certain things to China or to Russia because it made short-term economic sense. But uh, this strategic way of looking at things puts, puts, puts everything in a different light. So anyway, I'm pleased to see this discussion emerging. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, let me turn now to Julia Poliskanova from TNI. Yes, thank you. Thanks a lot and uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I think it's clear that today, globally, there is really a competition. Competition not only for green technologies, but now also raw materials going into them. Um, and especially with the US Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which is a game changer in what's happening, we feel that there is a real risk now that Europe will actually fall behind on some of this mover, first mover advantage, for example, in battery cells that we had recently. Uh, from our side, I think we believe that Europe still needs open markets. We need some collaboration. But we must wake up and we should not be naive. So what shall we do? Uh, three things that I'd like to briefly cover in introductory remarks. Critical Raw Materials Act, very important, so a few words there. But I'd also like to say uh, a few words about money, funding, uh, and maybe a word on permitting in Europe as well. So Critical Raw Materials Act uh, has really an opportunity and, 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 and a, you know, a, a possibility to really be the answer to the Inflation Reduction Act in some ways if we do this right. In our view, we absolutely need to have strategic projects as the Commission is considering. These projects must come with high social and environmental standards because if they don't, there will simply be a protest on the streets, right? You can't do go to areas for mining. It's just not going to be acceptable to people here. But we must give support to not just domestic but also global projects in mining as well as specifically in refining and recycling so we really uh, accelerate that in, in, in Europe and beyond uh, but with, with standards. So that's around projects. The, the second pillar of Critical Raw Materials Act is for us around circularity. 
It's not just about um, getting projects and recycling. I think what we find uh, when we talk with, with industry more and more is that we just need to um, accelerate skills and expertise in Europe, scale up, improve the quality with which things are recycled. And all of that requires support, funding, um, and, and, and really attention from all levels of government to make sure that when most products come to the end of life, be it electric vehicles, be it aluminium from cars in the next 10 years, we have the industry here in Europe to recycle that. And it's not just being shipped to, to places in, in, in Asia. But beyond recycling, there's already today a lot of opportunity, and, and, and Peter mentioned that, and that's around so-called remining. There's plenty of mining waste lying around. In places like Czech Republic, right, in Czechia from, from post-Soviet times, really badly managed uh, tailings that we can actually see as a resource. In fact, uh, US has already done that. They've already mapped the potential and are now going after this. We should do the same in Europe. Let's map it. Let's actually find out what it is that we have. Let's have a depository or inventory of that. Funnily enough, we already have uh, actually an obligation in Europe to do so by 2012, but every time we looked, we've never found an inventory of mining waste. So I think it's really time to, to look at it again, and it's a real business opportunity. Uh, and last word on, around CRM is around global dimension. Um, we have some capacity to extract raw materials in Europe, for example, direct lithium extraction, and, and we should go for that with, with high standards and communities on board. But we should also realize that for the foreseeable future, and maybe forever, we will continue relying on imports, because it's just because, because of geology, basically. So we need to create strategic partnerships with third countries. We might even go down as much as co-investing in mines and refineries abroad, on the condition that then our our companies get the offtake. So that global dimension shouldn't be forgotten. And as we do that, we can bring our higher standards to these countries and help their development as well. So that's around critical raw materials act. But, but if I may, I'd like to spend a minute on, on the money as well. I think money is very important. And that's where US IRA, of course, is brilliant. It's a lot of money, and it's simple money as well. We in Europe spent a lot of money already subsidizing uh, both manufacturing, for example, around battery value chains, but also electric vehicles themselves. This year alone, we'll spend $5 billion on electric vehicle purchase subsidies, an additional $6 billion on subsidizing company cars across Europe, and then at least 20 billion, for example, in IPSE on the battery value chain. That's loads of money. The problem is that it's too complicated for companies to access in a similar way as, as in the US. So for us, it is really core, one, to make it simple and bankable, long-term, easy to access, going beyond R&D, etc. And two, also add local content requirements to that funding. So part of those things have to be produced in Europe rather than just subsidizing, for example, electric vehicles coming from China. And last but not least, permitting. I think there's many more probably people here on the panel has got more experience. Every time we talk to any company, be it SAF for aviation, a battery factory, or a charging infrastructure, permitting is a problem. If we're serious about competing globally, we need to simplify and speed things up in Europe. That doesn't mean uh, cutting green tape. Green regulations are not the problem. The problem is red tape. Sometimes people simply don't even know which authority is in charge and what is the process among hundreds of local procedures there in place. So digitalizing uh, and, and, and just, for example, just putting one project manager in a country per project, for example, a mine application. So that person in an authority helps the company navigate the entire field, can really help. And last but not least, it's about skills. Uh, we shouldn't maybe be complaining about local authorities. We should maybe support them, give them expertise and training so they know how to approve these projects. Because we have lost skills in mining in Europe for a while now. And in some places, we just don't know how to approve some of these projects. But if we don't do that, no matter what else we do, this will remain a bottleneck. Thanks, Julia. Uh, it was a very pro-business uh, speech that you gave, which is quite refreshing coming from an NGO. Let me turn now to Anna-Michelle Azimakopoulou.
Global terms, we have to admit that we've fallen behind severely. We import 47% of the primary aluminium. China's responsible for about 60% of total global capacity. So with demand for aluminium growing in countries like China and Russia featuring uh, as some of the biggest potential sources, I think it's very clear that supply diversification is an issue when it comes to aluminium. By 2030, around 18 megatons of aluminium will be needed in Europe alone. Uh, we have to ask ourselves what's driving this growth in demand. We heard a little bit about this. It's electric vehicles, it's wind turbines, it's solar panels, it's the green and digital transitions. And the CRM Act is driven by the imperative needs of the green transition. And aluminium is there, not just in your tennis racket, but at every stage. So whether it's for renewable energy itself or the products that energy is needed for, I mentioned solar panels. Earlier this year, we had the EU unveil the solar panel strategy, which aims to bring 600 gigawatts of solar energy online by 2030. That's a big, a big task. Um, aluminium makes up 85% of the total content of solar panels, and solar panels make about 7% of China's trade surplus. So you get a two-for-one win on this one. It's a two-for-one deal. More support for the aluminium industry. Which, only, which boosts our strategic autonomy in this sector, but it also, let's say, denies money to China, which it uses to pay to subsidize aluminum production. And this lack of fair competition is one of the big issues for the sector. State, sub state subsidies provided by the Chinese government to the producers um, was the biggest issue I was hearing about from the industry. That is, until the energy crisis hit. <laughs> now I'm hearing the energy crisis. Um, and I'm not sure what the CRM Act can do about the energy crisis, frankly, but um, I think that we do need to bring together energy policy, competition policy, uh, chemicals regulation, environmental regulation, funding schemes. All of this, I think, needs to come together to create an ecosystem that is going to support the aluminum industry. Um, so. I think an agency might be the right way to do that. I'm not in favor generally of creating new structures, but in this particular case, I would actually think about it. Um, let me just close with a, a more general comment about um, the CRM Act and, and how this fits into what we call open strategic autonomy. Those of you who've heard me speak before might have heard me say that you know when I when I analyze this buzzword of autonomy, I look to its Greek origins, because autonomy is actually a Greek word. It's the word autonomia. It comes from aftos, which means self, and nomos, which means law. So literally, it means making your own rules, making your own laws. The CRM Act falls into this very well. And the word critical is also a Greek word. <laughs> it, it comes from krisis, which means judgment. But it's the same root as for crises. So I would strongly suggest that when, when we're looking at the CRM Act, from all these perspectives, whether it's NGO, whether it's industry, whether it's the commission, whether it's stakeholders, we should use our better judgment in order to avoid future crises and make the right set of rules. And I think that we'll be, from the perspective of the, parla of the parliament, we'll certainly be open to collaborating with the commission and with the co-legislators on that. Thank you. Thanks uh, very much, uh, Anna Michel, for, uh, and to all of you, actually, for those very good uh, starting uh, introductions. Uh, to get the conversation started now, let me maybe ask each one of you, and we'll start with you, Peter, to uh, reflect about this notion of self-sufficiency. Um, I think it was two years ago, uh, talking about lithium, Commissioner Sefcovic uh, said there was a possibility that <coughs> Europe could become self-sufficient in uh, the, uh, the, the lithium uh, supply chain, uh, which is used in battery uh, production. So is that something, self-sufficiency, that is also one of the objectives of the Critical Raw Materials Act? 100% self-sufficiency is not an objective. And there is another Greek word, otaki, which is what we want to stay away from. Um, the, the geology of Europe 
does not make it even conceivable that we can be self-reliant as an economy from what's in our, uh, under the soil in Europe. We are part of an open uh, world. We are a trading region. We export a lot, we import a lot. The open uh, markets have to remain. But what we need to focus on domestically is that we make much better use of the potential we do have for both primary and secondary raw materials so that we're not like 100% dependent on China for rare earths or for many of the other things. We have to, and my commission is very, very uh, often speaking about this, we have to try and achieve a certain percentage of uh, ability to supply our own demands, whether it's 10, 15, 20, 30%, it will depend on the material and it will depend on the stage in the value chain. But we, we want to set some, some destination points in our Critical Raw Materials Act to really show that the objective is to increase the level of uh, ability to serve our own needs, but in no way to totally uh, try and become self-sufficient. Uh, self so you, you, you mentioned percentages, so the Critical Raw Materials Act will maybe contain objectives in terms of getting certain amounts produced uh, here in Europe for each of the 30 uh, critical raw materials. Is that uh, right? Well, my commissioner has been speaking about this. He's, he said, uh, I think, uh, in, in speeches in the last couple of days, that um, you know, we should be aiming to, to, to supply up to 30% of our needs for certain things for the reasons I've explained. Mm -hmm. we, he calls it creating leverage. You know, you're much in a much stronger position if you're able to do something yourself and not going, um, you know, begging, with your begging bowl, asking, asking a supplier who's got many choices of where they sell their materials to, to favour you above others. Okay, thank you very much. Povos, your reflection about this notion of self-sufficiency. Yeah, I, I was just going to ask about the origins of the word autarky before being <laughs> uh, And yeah, obviously that, that's, that's not the answer. And e e even if we didn't have a geological structural impediment to doing that, I, I probably wouldn't think it was the right thing to do. But the thing is to, as, as Peter said, not, not leave ourselves in this position of total dependency. You know, I don't want to see Europe like a turtle on its back. Um, and particularly when I see other regions of the world and other countries, the US and, and China, moving on these things with such clarity of purpose, I think sometimes in Europe we're a bit it feels like we're still kind of looking for the cappuccino machine while the Americans are sorting out what they're going to do. And I think we, we, we cannot afford to assume that we're going to live in a gentle, docile world where we can just outsource these things when it suits us and then go and, go and pick them up. I don't think we can assume that we'll always have access to these things. And to be less dependent, to have options, um, yeah, it puts you in a much more comfortable position when you have to go and, 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 and negotiate. And I think there's a happy medium between autarky and total dependence. And that's, that's what this... That's what this act needs to help us deliver. And then more generally, we'll need an industrial policy that moves us in, in that direction. And I would be delighted to start to see us talking about targets and ambitions for the share of these materials that we might be able to produce ourselves. And so when it comes to aluminium specifically, uh, do you believe there are steps that the European Union could take to improve or increase the amount that is currently produced in Europe? Because, I mean, like you alluded to, uh, factories have been closing down uh, on the continent, we have, or we had, um, and actually we still do have, some production capacity here. But so what can the EU or, uh, or the member states do to help bring a little bit back or keep a minimum amount of that production still in Europe? Mm. I mean, first of all, we've got to get to grips with our energy situation. That, that, that's, that's the, I'm really sick of the phrase elephant in the room. But I'll say it anyway. We, you know, I, I was in a meeting with one of our members a few weeks ago and there was discussion about state aid and the raising of a threshold of 50 million euros and he stopped me and said you know in 2020 my electricity bill was 250 million in 2023 I expect that it will be around 3.5 billion okay that that's a problem I mean that that's not you 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 can't run European industry on, on these kinds of prices, you, you, you just cannot. So we've, we've got to do something about this. And I think in the long term, the solution has to be massive investments in renewables and diversification of our sources and basically the construction of a whole new energy model for Europe. In the short term, um, there, there is going to need to be support to keep industry ticking over during the next couple of years until things settle down a little bit. So that's one thing, is we, we need energy prices that people can live with. Another important aspect to all this is trade defense. You know, Europe has 
if it wants to deploy them, quite quite effective trade defense tools in its arsenal. You know, it's really problematic if we uh, undertake to produce metal more sustainably, cut our carbon footprint, and so on. Uh, then the combination of those efforts plus the high energy prices mean that you simply cannot run the plant anymore, so you shut it down. And mechanically, almost the next day, one pops up in China to supply this material. Mm. That cannot be allowed to go on. And if it, if it does, you know, it, it's not that in three or four years when things calm down a bit, we can just switch everything back on. This will be gone. And I, I think, I, I don't like to, you know, I, I think sometimes that can sound quite hysterical, but um, this... This is happening now, and we don't have the luxury of slowly reflecting on what to do over the next five, ten years. We need uh, solutions to maintain the industrial base that we have here and ideally start to develop it further because the demand is going to be there. So the only question is, are we going to make the stuff here or are we going to go and import it from, from elsewhere in the world? Jodor Poliskanova, this notion of self-sufficiency is something you um, spoke about or alluded to in your uh, initial statement. Is that something that uh, the EU should be uh, aspiring to? And can it do that for every <clears throat> um, of those 30 critical raw materials? Yes, well, first of all, I, I do agree with Peter and Paul that it's about resilience to have parts of this, you know, capturing parts of this value chain, not 100%. We have looked into this uh, when it comes to, to, to our expertise around battery value chains. So let me maybe throw in some numbers what we see is, is actually possible. So actually battery cells is a great example. I don't know if people know here in the room, but already today Europe actually produces more than half of the battery cells for electric vehicles. So thanks to European Battery Alliance and, and various other support, that's actually happening. And what we see is that uh, by 2027, we can actually uh, produce all of the battery cells we need for electrification, for energy storage here in Europe. When it comes to cathodes, so a key component, right, cathode active materials in, in the battery, again, lots of announcements and, 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 and work is happening. So more than half of all the cathode active material also can come from uh, manufactured in Europe, not always a European company, but by companies manufactured here. Uh, we also looked into lithium specifically. Uh, so lithium mining is, is, is very hard to predict because some projects are, you know, are more, more um, certain than others. But when we look at refining stage of lithium, which is really critical, right? Most of it today is in, in China. Actually, we can have more than 60% of all the lithium hydroxide made here in Europe for our needs, for the battery for all the applications by 2030. So there is, a, there is a lot of opportunity. Now, all of these are announcements, right? They're announcements, they're plans, they're not yet here. And this is where the strong industrial policy comes in. For us, strong industrial policy comes together with strong climate policy that we very much support as, as an NGO, right? Because without simpler funding, for example, a sovereignty fund, without strong CRM Act to set the framework, these investments might not materialize. They might actually go instead to the US. That's really the risk. And if they go to the US, the Green Deal is, is not possible. So this is a bit, you know, the, the numbers, but just to say that this is only possible with a strong industrial policy. It won't just happen because announcements are there today. Okay, thank you. Anna Michel Nazimakopoulou, um, uh, autarky obviously is not uh, even possible, but more self-sufficiency is something that definitely gets broad support among everybody. Uh, on this panel at least. Uh, how can trade policy help the European Union advance this? Uh, how far have we actually gone in uh, trying to broker some of these uh, agreements with potential uh, supplier countries? And which, what more can we do? Um, let me just speak like a politician for a second. If, uh, if your, your goals and your dreams aren't scary, then I think they're just not big enough. So, you know, I think autarky is off the table. It's utopian. But I think we should aim for it anyway, in a, in a way. Um, the question is, what does it mean? Um, it means being able to fulfill your own needs. There, I'll do, I'll do the Greek thing again. And how do you do that? I think you have to do that with, with what you, you, all three of you have just been saying. You need a balance. I mean, that's why the buzzword is open strategic autonomy because it's not just producing it in the first primary or secondary manner, which is not possible. It's also having the strategic partnerships, and the strategic partnerships have to have a basis, and the basis has to has to be the same value system. You you know, 
Now, you asked me about trade policy. Trade policy has a role to play in that through its free trade agreements and also through the strategic partnerships. We've seen the strategic partnerships with Ukraine. We had another one with Namibia. Hopefully, we'll have one with Norway. Norway is a country we can have a strategic partnership with. Um, in free trade agreements now, things are sort of in the infant stage when it comes to that. There really isn't uh, a concrete formula yet. CETA, that's can the Canadian one, has an article about bilateral dialogue on raw materials uh, matters. There's nothing about CRMs in Japan and in the Vietnam free trade agreements. Um, there's talk about including a chapter in Chile and Australia, but it's not the easiest thing. So maybe the strategic partnerships are a better way to go about this. In any case, I think to conclude that um, our industrial policy and our policy in general has to be a lot more aggressive in protecting European industry. I mean, it's just that simple. You know, that's what the U.S. is doing. That's what China has been doing forever. Yes, sometimes the best defense is offense, and, and it's time for offense because when these places close down, correct me if I'm wrong, they don't open up again. I mean, it's not like, you know, you don't just turn the switch on to open them up again. So every time we lose one, you've got to consider it almost lost. So, you know, that's just beyond the point of being acceptable anymore. Thanks, Hannah Michelle. Let me pick a question now coming uh, from the audience uh, via Slido. So that's a question from Victor Dries from OVAM. Uh, he's asking about uh, recycling. So recycling aluminium is much more energy and resource efficient. How can we make sure we're, we recycle more? And how do we prevent materials from leaving Europe? How do we collect and recycle waste better? And actually, the question is quite timely because we're having some new initiatives uh, being uh, put on the table today uh, by the European Commission. So maybe, Peter Handley, you can say a few words about that. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> we know that um, in the case of aluminium, if you're recycling, most of the energy you need is already uh, contained inside the aluminium product, so it's, it's much more efficient. But it's not perfect for every application. Sometimes you need the purity of the primary aluminium depending on products, particularly in the defence and aerospace uh, field. Um, but we've been pushing the whole uh, waste regulation, circular economy agenda for quite some time, and I was uh, heavily involved in this in the last, in the last commission. But uh, more recently, I think the... Uh, proposal we made for the waste shipment regulation is very much designed to make sure that um, we are much more careful before we export um, wastes, which are actually feedstocks, to the rest of the world because we want to make sure that there are good um, conditions in place to, uh, to do this recycling in other parts of the world uh, to high environmental and social standards. We've seen too, too many ugly cases of uh, stuff that was supposed to be recycled in Europe. I'm not talking aluminium now, but stuff which was supposed to be recycled in Europe, even things like paper and packaging, which were found in Vietnam, and then the Vietnamese shipped them back. They said, deal with your own stuff. And they're absolutely right. We should not be having a consume, use, throw away um, mentality, because at the end of the day, we are just wasting so much material, which is actually good for somebody else's uh, industrial process. Paul on recycling, yes? What Peter said is really important. If, to, when you export scrap aluminium, you're exporting energy, among, among other things. So obviously, uh, given the increasing demand for the material here, it's preferable to keep it here. And if it is going to be exported somewhere, what's really important is that there are comparable environmental standards wherever it goes, so that you don't have a pull that allows for this stuff to be taken and processed cheaply and badly, uh, because yeah, then you, then you get an artificial incentive to, to export scrap out of Europe, and this is something that we need to avoid. Obviously, recycling needs to be promoted. Aluminium is a really, it's a good material in that way. It's permanently recyclable. It's endlessly recyclable. Um, the only problem is, problem, the only reality that we have to have in mind is that given this increasing demand that we know we're going to get with the energy transition, it won't be enough. So there will also need to be primary production in order to keep up with, uh, with the demand. But everything that we can recycle, we, we, we should, and we should close the loops as well as we can. 
Julia Poliskanova, maybe a few words on the recycling? Yes, absolutely. Maybe two, two points to, to add on, on, on recycling. I, we, we really think just broadly to say that recycling or you know, secondary uh, materials is really where Europe can excel. We don't have much primary stuff, but we can lead here. Uh, someone, a CEO Verko, right, one of Europe's companies, said something brilliant last year at our event. The best mine for a battery is a used battery. And that's just how, how it is. What can Europe do within CRM? We actually think there's a few things that can be done to make it more difficult to simply ship uh, valuable waste out of Europe. We can either look at certain safety or performance standards, right? So in a way, it's a type of a protectionist measure, but under the, 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 the save uh, the standards or requirements kind of agenda, that would make sure that recyclers here have basically a first go. And if they show they do it well, they can get that stuff before it's shipped. Or for some of the strategic stuff, if we really think something is strategic, let's be strategic, let's not allow that to be simply shipped outside of Europe. We should consider some kind of limits or even as much as bans on some stuff being shipped. So that's around CRM. And then there's another piece of legislation legislation actually, which specifically for aluminium, but also steel is important. And that's the end of life vehicles directive that's coming next year from DG Environment. And there, in a way, a lot of stuff in vehicles is already recycled. Most of it, over 90% of cars is recycled. But one, uh, around a third of cars just illegally disappear. So that's a lot of aluminium we're wasting. And two, it's not always recycled to the purity, to the quality that can be then used again in, for example, manufacturing of new cars or, or other applications. So we need to, first of all, uh, again, we, digital systems via better collection ensure we collect all these cars. They don't just disappear somewhere legally. Maybe somewhere still in a in someone's yard, backyard, in be it Antwerp or Romania. I don't know. That can't be happening. We we need those cars, right? But two, I think we also s simply should improve requirements around collection, uh, sorting, um, shredding, so that the high quality aluminium stuff we really uh, do separately, and there is this purity in recycling that. For example, car manufacturers need to produce new cars. So a lot this can also be done in the ELV directive. Okay, thanks. Anna Michelle Azimakopoulou. Um, the uh, idea that uh, Julia just uh, spoke about now, banning uh, the export of some uh, materials which are collected here, that sounds frightening enough, probably, uh, and ambitious enough for you. Well, look, yes. Yes, I think it is. It's in the category of, it's in the category of frightening enough. Yes, I, I would have to say. Um, look, though, I mean, even for big proponents of free trade, and I'm one of them, um, I do realize that there are moments when we have to do frightening things when it comes to, when it comes to trade. Um, and I think recycling is very, very, very important. But um, it's only a piece of the puzzle. And I think that a lot of times we focus our discussions more on recycling because we don't want to focus on even more frightening things than banning exports of certain goods, which would be mining stuff in Europe. That's, I think, the most frightening of all. And I listened to, it was with great interest that I heard you mention permitting. Um, and even though that's technically a national competency, I do believe that there's a lot of things that can be done in Europe to harmonize permitting and make it easier. And I would be in favor of that as well. But I mean, basically what we need to do is get over our own mentality that you know this can't be done in Europe because in Europe it can be done at the highest environmental standards and in a regulated manner and without child labor and without forced labor, whereas sometimes this happens, as we know, in other jurisdictions. So a more frightening thing than that would be the mining, changing our, our, our NIMBY, not in my backyard, um, mentality in Europe. And I think that politicians speaking outright about the importance of critical raw materials to our future uh, has a lot to do with that. Okay, talking about mining, there's a question uh, actually coming from the audience uh, on that topic. A question from Anton Misford Bonici. He's asking about bauxite uh, mining in a country like uh, Guinea uh, in Africa. So how can the production of semi-industrial bauxite mining in Guinea access European supply chains to benefit the host nation and its communities? Um, wants to have a go at this? Maybe you, Anna Michelle, since... You're involved in trade, or are you, Julia? You're well, volunteering. it could, I mean, theoretically, it could be a strategic partnership or it could be as part of a, a trade agreement. But that's, again, you know, it's a pretty specific question. Um, yeah. 
I, I don't, I don't, I'm not really sure I can give a more specific answer than that. I mean, there's, there's certainly a technical way to go about doing it. That's not the problem. The problem is, might be political, but it's not technical. Julie Poliskanova? So maybe I'll add. So, of course, there is, yes, absolutely, we can have a strategic partnership with that country, and via that, we can help them raise standards. But there is a, a really uh, easy, in a way, way in which a company that can have supplies in Guinea can make sure that standards are high, and that's doing proper due diligence, doing your social and environmental due diligence, ensuring that high standards, international conventions around human rights, uh, around free and prior and informed consent of communities, etc., is done, uh, that uh, management around water, waste, pollution is done from those mines, right? And that's really something companies, uh, companies be it uh, Tinto or, or be it Volkswagen can actually do. They can use their power as a downstream player to improve standards and, and, and disclosure in those countries. And, and I will just say one, one last word. Corporate social due diligence directive are huge in Europe today. Similar stuff already is, is, is required in France and Germany. Uh, a lot of us are talking how expensive and cumbersome it is. I would just say let's not think about the cost of doing it, but let's think about it the cost of not doing this. Disclosure is coming. People want to know. And even if we delay this or weaken it for a few more years, it will not go away. And such questions like that will keep coming. Horvos, the question of bauxite mining in a country like Guinea, um, what's yeah, I mean, your reflection on that? Certainly, we, we, cannot, we cannot decide that the model for the future is this nasty mercantilist setup where we just go, go out into the world, take what we want, and, and, and forget what's left behind. I mean, that, that that was never any good, and it's certainly not not going to work going forward. Um, first of all, because there will be more and more in the way of compliance obligations, and second of all, and more fundamentally, because it's the only decent way to behave. And I, I don't know. I like to think that particularly larger corporate structures have understood, either for one reason or another, that they don't have an alternative. That this, these things need to be managed properly. And then I think it is important that there are. Uh, reasonable regulatory frameworks put in place to ensure compliance. It's, I mean, we all have our Teslas and our iPhones and all that, and we would all like to believe that these don't come at some monstrous cost to a child or a village or whatever. I think this is this is important, and I mean, you, you just cannot defend an alternative point of view in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Peter Handley, the Commission has been taking initiatives, right, on corporate due diligence? Well, yeah, but I actually want to address the, the, the strategic partnerships point because we've actually been, my team's been negotiating the uh, strategic partnerships with, with Canada, Ukraine, Kazakhstan and Namibia. And just pausing a second on Namibia, it's our first partnership in the, on the African continent. And it was signed off at COP27 by President von der Leyen. And the idea here is that we find a a mutual um, interest in, in, in integrating our economies. And again, it's coming back to the value chain approach. So what is of interest to, um, to Namibia is um, it's sitting on great uh, solar and wind potential. It wants to generate renewable energy. It <coughs> wants to produce green hydrogen. It wants to develop its uh, rare earth and other critical raw material value chains. It wants to bring in Europeans as investors and partners and uh, we're building on uh, a lot of existing national and corporate uh, engagement from the European side and putting it in a framing where there's a certain st stability uh, uh, of the outlook provided by the fact that we've concluded a political agreement. But the real meat comes when we actually sit down and develop investment projects uh, together, work on how to raise the environmental, social and governance, work on innovation, work on skills, work on infrastructure and deploy our global gateway approach. So that's what we're trying to do in other African countries. I have to say, however, that we're not currently thinking about uh, Guinea, which is a major supplier of bauxite, um, heavily controlled by the Chinese and the Russians, of course. Uh, so what, what available space is there? And also um, fairly frequent changes of government, if I may say so politely. So um, I'll stop there. Okay, thanks. Another question uh, coming uh, from the audience again. So it's about rare earths uh, and uh, refining capacity. So and that's similar to lithium, um, rare earths um, are controlled uh, in China. They control the whole chain from mining uh, to refining, and they are the 
experts, in fact, when it comes to refining. And part of this is due to the environmental impacts of these uh, refining uh, processes. So how will the EU uh, look to address this? I guess uh, this is a question probably for you, Peter. Yeah, it's not just rare earths. Um, it's the rare earth value chain, which is the thing that's particularly strategic is the development of the permanent magnets, which go into practically everything. I mean, you can't have an electric car just with a battery. It needs a motor, and the motor, most motors uh, are using these permanent magnets. Um, but it's also everywhere in the digital space. It's air, huge magnets in wind turbines, and I could go on and on. But particularly in defense and aerospace, you don't have fighter jets and missiles without these, uh, without these permanent magnets. And uh, Europe uh, used to produce uh, a lot of this stuff. We still produce some magnets, but um, it's true. Over the last 20 years now, uh, China has become the world's uh, dominant supplier. Um, and this is why already in 2020 we decided we needed to take some action on this, and we set up the European Raw Materials Alliance, and its first task was looking into this problem. They delivered a very good action plan, and uh, already quite a few things are happening, particularly uh, I'll give you a few concrete examples. We are recovering rare earths from mining waste. Um, this is an LKAB uh, 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 project in the north of Sweden. We have been funding research into cleaner ways of producing, of separating rare earths. We have a project which is now a company in Norway called Retech, which is going to take the rare earths from uh, Sweden, LKAB, and then they're going to go to um, companies in Germany, which are tier one suppliers to the automotive sector. So you're going to have cleaner, uh, more sustainable, shorter value chains for the separation of rare earths and the production of magnets. Um, just in the last fortnight, the Estonian government has announced the first ever Just Transition grant of almost 19 million euros to help uh, Neo Performance expand its facilities in Estonia to separate uh, rare earths to produce magnets and to recycle magnets. A very good value chain approach where there's a lot of automotive uh, sector companies in, uh, interested in, in sourcing from this supply. And again, in the last month alone, we have um, Solvay, the big uh, chemical company, uh, who's announced that um, they're going to really ramp up the separation of the rare earths for the neodymium magnets at their facility in La Rochelle, which incidentally up till 25 years ago was one of the major players in the rare earth space. But there was a conscious choice at that time in Europe and in North America to let these processes go to China where they could be done more cheaply, largely because there was total disregard for the environmental and social consequences. And as a result, some parts of northern China are absolutely um, toxic environments and a lot of the rare earth production depends on very, very poor conditions in Myanmar. Julia Poliskanova, yes, do you see some kind of trade-off uh, here between uh, the clean production that we want to have here in Europe, or refining in this case of rare earths? Is there a trade-off between this, um, uh, this uh, aim for self-sufficiency um, and, um, and the pollution that goes with it? Yes, I think that's, that's a good question. When it comes to refining, actually, rare earths or lithium, most input is actually energy, right? That's what you mostly need. So scaling up renewables is no regrets for all of these processes, right? So that's important. But of course, when we do this in Europe, we should also have strong pollution control in all of the different standards we have, for example, in the Industrial Emissions Directive. I wanted to add one, one thing, though, about rare earths in particular. Of course, uh, the value chain approach, industrial policy, absolutely, absolutely key. But there's one more solution, and that's it, it applies to many things, but especially to rare earths, and that's also innovation and substitution. You can have motors today without rare earths. Renault is already doing this. Tesla used to do it with induction motors. There are other technologies. And I think that's another solution that we sometimes don't maybe talk about enough. I mean, we can't predict innovation, of course. But when something gets too tight, it, got, it, it was the same situation with copper. Copper was a bit too tight, so some of the networks went to aluminium. The substitution effects are also important. And I think part of the solution to our earth problem in Europe will be actually substitution. Mm -hmm. Anna Michelle Simakopoulou, a reflection about the, the trade-off potentially between production here in Europe of, um, or refining, in this case, of rare earths and, and the pollution that goes with it. Is, well, we is can't hide our heads in the sand, right? And just, you know, I mean, this was, this was the choice that was made years ago. 
to bury our heads in the sand and, and source it from somewhere else where we didn't have to worry about it. We can't say we want a green deal and, and not mean a green deal for the planet, ultimately. I mean, that's just hypocrisy. So, you know, I, I'd like to have it substituted, but until it gets substituted, we still need it. So if we need it, we have to get it from someplace. So we might as well do the best we can to get it in the cleanest way we can. And that has to be a, a global concern. We can't just look at it that way. Paul Voss, a trade-off between pollution on the one hand and bringing back pollution, uh, uh, production uh, here in Europe. Michelle's right. It's not only hypocrisy, it's stupidity. You know, I, I saw people celebrating at some point in early 2020 when CO2 emissions had fallen by 8% or something like that because our economy stopped. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if that's the way we're going to solve the climate problem, uh, then, then, the, then it's hard to get excited about it. So... There, there, there are going to be trade-offs, but the idea that we outsource defense to the Americans, industry to the Chinese, and energy supply to the Russians, and then we're really happy because we cut some emissions here, it doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. It's not a long-term solution at all for Europe. I think we have to look these trade-offs in the eye and make thoughtful, deliberate decisions about what kind of society we want to build over the next 20, 30 years, and, and just... Uh, and just casually, I mean, Peter used the phrase Europe used to produce a couple times in the last 10, 15 minutes. And these are really tragic words. Um, it, it might have seemed politically and financially expedient at the time. And, and now, with a bit of hindsight, it looks like extreme carelessness. And we have maybe a last opportunity now to get to grips with this and, and, and do things differently. And, uh, and I, I hope... We're not just having a rhetorical discussion here, but a more fundamental shift in the way we manage our security, our, our energy, and our industry. Peter Hendley, um, and maybe to conclude, because uh, we're getting closer uh, to the end, um, what reflection do you have about uh, raw materials which are not critical, those which are, are not on the list, but which are nevertheless pretty strategic, like uh, aluminium? I mean, this is a very uh, heavily regulated uh, part of, uh, of industry, I keep on complaining about the ETS and those kinds of things. What kind of industrial policy or long-term perspective uh, can the EU give to those industries which, which are, are central to the, to the green uh, transition? Um, I, I take two things in there. We are looking at uh, about 85 raw materials, screening them on a regular basis, and uh, that's the basis for our three yearly assessments of what is critical. Uh, criticality is a well-proven method, but it has its limitations. And one of the limitations is it's looking a little bit backwards uh, rather than helping you to make choices going forwards. And that's why in our call for evidence and consultation, we announced that we're, we're going to be looking at something where there's more political choice involved as well as the, if you like, methodologically sound uh, criticality. And this is strategic materials. And this we are tying very much to what is it that Europe has decided it wants to do. And what, it's, what we've decided to do is we want to decouple from fossil fuels uh, faster than planned uh, to reduce our dependencies on Russia. And we're going to need all these green technologies uh, to do that with. And therefore, we're going to need a lot more uh, of these critical raw materials, which are key dependencies for those technological technologies to develop. Um, so linking uh, our choices on strategic materials for those strategic goals of Europe is, is one of the things, and that's where we will be looking beyond the classic rare earths, scandium type thing, to what type of metals and minerals will we need for these things in much greater quantities. And clearly, copper is going to be necessary for electrification of the global economy, much more copper in electric vehicles, loads of copper in uh, wind turbines, and that's just one example. Sorry, Paul, I didn't think yeah, aluminium. Fine. You know what, it's fine. And that will be part of the Critical Raw Materials Act. So we are addressing the question of strategic materials and the strategic projects that flow from that in our analysis for the Critical Raw Materials Act, yes. Okay, Paul Voss, you must be delighted to hear this. Yeah, I'm delighted. It, 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 it makes sense. I mean, uh, so of, co of course I'm, 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 I'm pleased, but it's somehow nothing less than we would expect. It's what needs doing. So, uh, yeah, we very much welcome it. And now, of course, we'd be very interested to see what's in the text and, and the work of, of moving from a, a proposal to a final piece of legislation. But it's really encouraging, yeah. Julia Poliskanova, maybe a reflection on strategic materials uh, by contrast to critical ones. 
Does that make sense? Yes, no, absolutely. It does make sense, of course. When we talk about aluminium, copper, steel, you know, all these things are, are critical. We should be looking beyond just the academic definition of what critical materials mean. I, I, I do agree. Maybe as a last word to, to add as well, uh, just to say, I think not all is doom and gloom in Europe. We do have globally the most ambitious framework. If I take electric vehicles, the phase out, the ambition of a phase out to go 100% electric for cars and vans is such a strong signal to our industry. A lot of things I mentioned today, investments around batteries and lithium are happening because of that. So we must keep that. In America, for example, they don't have that. So instead they're throwing money at things to happen, right? Because they can't put that policy in place. So let's keep the strong policies we have, but what we must do, not just in the next few years, but now, is to beef it up with a strong industrial policy. That's where CRM comes in, that's where funding comes in. And if we do this together, the ambition on the climate and the industrial policy to make sure part of this value chain at least is in Europe, I think we can still lead globally. And it's still not yet all, all, all lost. And Michelle Azimov Pokulu, the, the, the question of strategic raw materials by contrast to critical ones. I think we're going to have to expand uh, critical raw materials to include strategic raw materials if you want to make sure that in this, uh, somebody said the other day, we're in the age of perma crises. You know, I, I think if we don't want critical and strategic raw materials to be the next crisis, we're going to have to be a little bit more open about it. But like I said before, I've had conversations with, with Peter and I think we're pushing it open doors here. So. Great. Uh, we're reaching the end of this event. So before we close, I will ask each one of you to uh, say uh, maybe just in one or two sentences what you would want, uh, what is your main message to our audience uh, for today's um, um, uh, event. So we'll start with you, Anna Michelle. I think that that's my main, my main message is we have to make sure we avoid future crises. To avoid future crises, we have to be much more strategic in the way we look at critical raw materials, and aluminium is strategic. Julia Peliskanova? I would say let's not be naive. Uh, let's actually uh, wake up in Europe and start doing things differently. Uh, but let's not throw away the good stuff we have. For example, our really ambitious regulations, let's just back them up with a strong industrial policy, as I mentioned. Peter Handley. Well, I, I just hope that we can get this Critical Raw Materials uh, Act um, implemented before the end of this uh, political cycle. I think we've got the momentum with us and facts on the ground and the deteriorating global situation make it more necessary than ever that we, we, we deliver results. That would be a tall order indeed. Paul Voss, you have the privilege of the last word. I think we have the chance to do something transformative here. I mean, this, this discussion is, it really is very, very encouraging. And I think a few years ago it would have sounded a bit parochial and backwards, and now it's, uh, it's very current. Um, the job now is to actually deliver the thing. Aluminium can really help build the energy system and the economy that we need in the future. Let's make sure that we make it here in Europe. Thanks, Paul. I think this brings us to the end of this conference. Uh, thanks to our panelists uh, for attending. Thanks to our audience for following us. Uh, if you've missed uh, the beginning of this event, you can uh, watch it again on YouTube and other uh, social media platforms. We hope to see you again soon. And in the meantime... Take care, stay safe.